0: Hi, I'm Adrian Lee. I'll be guest hosting The Decibel for the next little while. Starting today, leaders from around the world are heading to Glasgow to explain what their countries are going to do to help slow down climate change. The meeting is part of COP26, the 26th conference of the parties. It's a two-week summit that happens every year. But this one's important for a few reasons. For one, we now have scientific certainty that humans are causing climate change. And two, this marks the first time in five years that countries will have to re-up on their commitments to the Paris Agreement, which was aimed at preventing the Earth from warming more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Bad news on that front, we've already warmed the planet by 1.1 degrees Celsius. And the UN is positioning this summit as, quote, the world's best last chance to get runaway climate change under control.
1: This is not simply or only an environmental problem. This is Climate change is a deeply human one. It, it affects children, it affects women, it affects marginalized communities, uh, it affects indigenous nations and peoples around the globe.
0: You know, there's a real human toll to climate change. To help us unpack why COP26 is such a big deal, Dr. Sarah Birch joins us on the show today. She's an associate professor at the University of Waterloo and the Canada Research Chair in Sustainability, Governance, and Innovation. You're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Hi, Adrian. Thanks for having me.
0: So what exactly does the science say about the state of our climate right now?
1: We know that we already have seen the planet warm by just over a degree. So we already have committed to some climate change. But in Canada, we've seen even more than that global average um, because we're a relatively more northern nation. And of course, we have extremely northern parts of this country. You know, we've had about 1.7 degrees of warming already here in Canada and even more in the north. So as we look forward into the future in 2050 or 2100, we can expect to see quite extreme levels of warming, six, seven degrees, even in the in the far north of Canada. We're seeing, of course, uh, increased extreme heat events; those those sort of extremely hot days that especially put pressure on the elderly, or or the sick, or those who can't get access to to cool places. We're seeing uh, increased floods, sea level rise. Uh, we're seeing ecosystems; you know, animals and plants have to move, shift, or suffer in other ways because of the warming we've already seen. These impacts are already significant, and we know that um, the emissions that we're continuing to produce put us on track for dangerous levels of climate change in
0: the future. So five years ago, nearly 200 countries signed on to the Paris Agreement at COP21, uh, and that was a big deal. All these governments making climate change a priority. How exactly have things gone since then from a climate science point of view? The Paris Agreement represents some pretty
1: ambitious and remarkable, in my view, commitments to tackling climate change together. Um, And climate change is a problem that, you know, we really do need this sort of global collaboration to solve, but also it really comes down to um, the local scale in terms of how the impacts play out and, and where the solutions really lie. But nonetheless, You know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, of which I'm a part, and uh, the broader process around the Paris Agreement, you know, suggests that we need to get to net zero carbon by 2050 and reduce emissions by at least, you know, 45 to 50 percent by 2030. And Canada has committed now to reducing our emissions by, you know, between 40 and 45 percent by 2030. So those commitments are significant. And in the Canadian context, we are starting to see some movements towards policies that could actually have a reasonable chance of delivering on those commitments, which is new for us.
0: And one of the headline numbers coming out of Paris was that we are trying to keep warming down to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Where are we right now with that?
1: Every five years, um, according to the Paris Agreement, we all have to say what we we promise we're going to do in terms of greenhouse gas reductions. And if we fully implement, this is a big if, if we fully implement everything we say we're going to do, we're still on track for around 2.7 degrees of warming. So on the one hand, that's pretty grim. That's more than the two degree goal and definitely more than the 1.5 degree goal that we've set for ourselves. However, It could be worse. This is, you know, this is bringing us into the territory of where we want to be and certainly better than we would have estimated, you know, 10 years ago or so. So this is an indication that nations are stepping up with policies and with promises that are more aligned with what the science tells us we should do to avoid the worst uh, climate change impacts.
0: If we're saying that 1.5 degrees Celsius is when we can really uh, uh, not necessarily put a stop to the climate emergency, but at least mitigate some of its worst effects, you know, now I'm hearing it's almost double.
1: You know, it's important to note that the 2 degree and the 1.5 degree limit is. It's this threshold beyond which if, you know, if we push the global climate sort of um, past that point, we're entering kind of a zone of uncertainty where there might be tipping points or surprises or, you know, the sort of escalating or exponential impacts of climate change that we have no idea how to cost or adapt to or deal with but we have to keep in mind that this isn't actually a cliff that we fall off at 1.5 degrees you know 1.7 degrees is better than 1.8 degrees so you know any any improvement that we make in constraining warming leads to saved lives leads to you know a bigger cushion for or sort of buffer zone for ecosystems so every step in the right direction is a really important one
0: so then what cushions are we looking at if we're talking about you know, projections of 2.7 degrees Celsius. How are people going to feel that?
1: Well, if we're looking at that that sort of higher emission scenario here in Canada, of course, we'd expect to see, uh, you know, more prolonged summer droughts. We'd expect to see, as we already are, uh, warming permafrost. This has significant impacts on, on northern communities and the stability of infrastructure that sort of sits on top of that permafrost in northern communities. Um, in the higher emission scenarios, we see certainly risk to food security and food supply as, you know, some crops are more drought and heat tolerant and, and others are not. Um, increased flooding in our cities. So those are just some of the impacts that we'd expect to see. And I think, you know, perhaps one of the most important changes in the nature of this conversation that I've seen over the last 10 years or so is that this is not simply or only an environmental problem. This is climate change is a deeply human one. It, it affects Children, it affects women, it affects marginalized communities, uh, it affects indigenous nations and peoples around the globe. You know, there's a real human uh, toll to climate change. Um, And likewise, the solutions to it, in my view, the best solutions to it, offer some really promising um, opportunities to deliver on lots of things that we care about. So, not just carbon. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I have a difficult time actually understanding or feeling or seeing what carbon is it's it's kind of invisible in my life it fuels it but it's invisible what I do understand is the nature that I see through my city and how far I have to walk to get to work and what food are you know what foods are in my fridge those are tangible aspects of my life that I think you know we can improve on if if we use climate change as this really important window to to tackle those things
0: and what about the tangible costs of this There's a couple of costs
1: that we need to talk about. One is the cost of decarbonizing. So one, you know, one is the cost of moving away from, uh, and this is especially important in the Canadian context, given how reliant we are on the extraction and export of fossil fuels um, and moving towards those cleaner renewables, the solar and the wind, and, you know, electrifying everything, electrifying our our transportation system and and, um, moving away from natural gas in our homes. These do entail costs, Likewise, adaptation, protecting our communities from the climate change impacts that we're already committed to, the floods and the heat waves and the droughts and this kind of thing, is a cost. But I would rather we start thinking about this as an investment because we are you know we are investing in in a future that avoids the cost of climate change, which is which which just absolutely dwarfs, completely swallows up any cost we would pay to adapt to or mitigate climate change now.
0: I wanna come back to the idea of this emergency feeling real for people. Uh, And I think that when, when conferences and summits like this are happening, it can be awful easy to dismiss them as this kind of political theater or at the very least inadequate for the scale of the challenge. So can you explain what the merits of a big global meeting like COP26 are?
1: Sure. However, I would say that there's an enormous range of perspectives on the merits of a global uh, process like the Conference of the Parties. So in my view, it, it serves a couple of really important functions, and there's also several ways that it needs to improve. So Um, Because a ton of greenhouse gases reduced anywhere on earth has the same impact on the climate. It doesn't matter if you reduce it here or if you reduce it in Brazil or if you reduce it in Cameroon, the climate doesn't care. Greenhouse gases are going down. That means that nations getting together and figuring out where it's cheapest and fastest to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's an excellent, honorable, really important way to, to tackle the climate problem. So the next reason why we need to work together and COP is a manifestation of that is because in the global north, in the wealthy industrialized countries, we are largely responsible for historical emissions, the emissions that we've produced up to now. Um, That balance has shifted and countries like China and India are now responsible for an enormous portion of global emissions. But nonetheless, we here in Canada, for instance, bear, I think, from a moral perspective and an ethical perspective, significant responsibility to um, help Um, lower income countries deal with the crisis we've created. Ultimately, this all has to come down to domestic policy. You know, we don't have a global government. It has to be embedded in Canada's climate change policies. And, you know, the rubber hits the road in cities in a lot of ways and is governed by, in our case, provinces and the national government. So in that way, you know, I I can completely sympathize with those who feel that, you know, the the conferences of the parties are are a lot of hot air. Mm.
0: So what are the goals of this particular iteration of COP?
1: So this COP is a chance to hammer out the details of how to implement the 2015 Paris Agreement. So it's taken some time to figure out, we've we've set this target, how does this actually play out in practice? Um, how do people report on their emissions, how much money is going from uh, from richer countries to poorer countries to fund adaptation. Um, these are the kinds of issues that are sort of on the table in this COP. Um, so that's sort of what we're looking for is a ratcheting up of ambition. Um, if, if collectively we're still promising um, a world that gets us to 2.7 degrees, the conferences of the parties, including this one, is the chance for countries to say, all right, well, we're going to do a little
0: better. And this is how. And do you have much hope that that's going to happen?
1: Well, um, I mean, there's been some really interesting shifts in the Canadian context with the Liberal government's promises around the around the carbon price and our new uh, Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Canada. It seems like there's a window of opportunity here in Canada, which is a crucial one, given that it's 2021 and we're committing to 40 to 45 percent reductions by uh, by 2030. To push through that window and start to expand our supply of, of clean electricity, which is absolutely crucial if we're all going to be driving electric vehicles by 2030. Uh, we need more electricity to supply, and that has to be a low carbon electricity in order to do that. We need to retrofit our buildings. We need to do all sorts of things.
0: So yes to hope?
1: Yes to hope, always to hope. Are you kidding? <laughs>
0: okay. I mean, I'm glad, I mean, personally, I'm grateful to hear that, you know, hearing from a climate expert telling me that there is hope you know, from someone on the sort of outside of that, uh, it can feel real hopeless, you know? And you're someone who lives in this material day in, day out. You know, what gives you hope broadly that we can solve this, as you said, monumental crisis?
1: Well, um, I'm wired that way. It's it's (laughs) it's, It's hard for me to explain, except to say that I think apathy and fear are not an option in this case. The only thing that will seal the deal is giving up. So um, that's not an option in my mind, but more importantly, I do see real, um, a real leveling up of our conversation around just how much more sustainable our future could be if we take reducing carbon seriously. I see nature-based solutions being implemented in cities around the world. So, you know, constructing a wetland to sink carbon, purify water, protect a community from floods you know, add a recreational space, enhance biodiversity, I see exceptionally sustainable buildings being built. I see a real takeoff in in the uptake of electric vehicles in BC. British Columbia has a new um, uh, zero emissions vehicle mandate that's really exciting and I hope that spreads through Canada. Um, So I, I see a couple of indicators that are really important to me that I think are kind of on the cusp of exponential increase. And we have to remember that carbon is woven throughout our lives in all kinds of deep and tough to change ways. It's a slow beast to turn around and it takes time for ambitious policies to bear fruit. So I know that most folks who are climate concerned don't wanna wait and I completely sympathize with that. I completely get that. But um, it takes time to build new buildings and to retrofit the existing ones that we have and to not just junk your current car, but to wait until you're done with it and then move on to an electric vehicle. This is a transition that takes time.
0: And so for those climate concerned, what are the specific things they should watch for over the course of these next two weeks uh, in terms of figuring out whether or not there is reason to hope for us personally?
1: From a justice perspective, I think they should watch for countries to make significantly greater Um, Promises and hopefully see those promises materialize in terms of real funding for uh, finance for adaptation in in the global south. I think that that's absolutely important. I would watch out for you know rising ambition um, and and promises from the large emitters. You know it's it's obviously been a rocky path um, on on climate change. programs in the United States as of late. Um, but we're we're looking out to see what what position Canada plays in terms of leading on on moving away from coal, which will be a crucial element of of you know grabbing that low-hanging fruit and, and decarbonizing the dirtiest the dirtiest fossil fuel we have. Um, so so those are just a couple of things that I would I would look out for in this COP. And then come back home and and wait for and and watch our federal government uh, hold them to account. To see them put into policies,
0: into place the policies that that would deliver on those targets we've set. And over the course of a two-week conference, where our governments are getting to work on the issue alongside major corporations, figuring out how to decarbonize. Uh, you know, how can we make sure that we everyday Canadians feel like they can make change and play the part that you talk about too? What are the sort of specific ways that that we can make that change?
1: As individuals, you know, there's a couple of, you know, important areas of your life where if you can afford to and if you have the options, you can reduce your your personal carbon footprint quite significantly. But I am very hesitant, you know, to put the onus of responsibility, to put the burden on individuals. You know, you you are bound up in the city that you live in. If the, if your work is far from where you live and there is no rapid transit or, you know, convenient public transportation, you must drive a car. You have no choice. You know, if you do not have easy access to, to plant-based food options, if they're priced out of your income, you just don't have the choice. So, you know, I, I think that we need to shift the conversation away from the kind of guilt message towards individuals and put it where it belongs which is, you know, on those decision makers who, you know, design our cities and and make those things available, you know, those low carbon options
0: available to us. All right. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. I'm Adrian Lee. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer. Angela Pincenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Dr. Sarah Birch. You can find her on Twitter at Sarah Lynn Birch. You can email us at thedecibel at If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at Adrian K. Lee. If you haven't already, hit that follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.